And we are. We're talking about irresistible. It's interesting that um, maybe you've noticed this. I, how many have ever spent any time in the hospital with some kind of ailment? Anybody? Isn't it interesting how you learn all these new hospital terms? And all of a sudden you feel like, hey, I could be a doctor. I mean, I know what a infarction is now or, or maybe a medial cruciate. You know, you get, you you get familiar with things you normally didn't know. You know, and it's, it's amazing. There's all these words that fit every, everybody's got their own terminology. And I think, I think all that's good because it, it serves a purpose. They're, they're, I'm sure those terms are a lot more specific to them and they make more sense. Like I've always wondered, why do they call it a contusion? And we call it a bruise. But there may be a reason. I mean, a contusion may be a specific kind of bruise. I don't know. It's like when you break your arm and then they say, well, it's just a fracture. Like, well, is it broke or not? I mean, I, you know, and so I, I don't know. But, you know, sometimes with those terms, you feel like, all right, you're smart and I'm not. I get it. And there's other things, though. You think about, I, I have golfed. I have watched very little golf. I, have, <laughs> I respect it because I can't do it at all. Um, but I, I have been amazed at some of the terms in golf, and some of it's fascinating because, you know, they're historical, start in Scotland, they've got all these little words, and I, I'm, I'm still not sure what a bogey, why that's a bogey. Like, if you go one over par, it's a bogey, and then double and triple, and in my case, it'd be quad bogeys. <laughs> but they have those. And if you don't golf, some of that you can feel left out because you don't really know what they're talking about. I mean, I've been, in, I've been in conversations where two people who are really into something and they have all the terms down, they'll start talking about it. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. I can infer a little bit from the conversation, but I, I've learned to just keep my mouth shut because I'm, I'm going to say something dumb. And then my daughters are into dance. And, and, and this is interesting. I, I was reading a little bit about this. I am re- really weird. <laughs> like, I just wondered why are all ballet terms in French? I just wondered. And so it's because, I guess... In the court of Louis XIV is where they kind of develop some of this. So, and they've got all these weird terms that if you don't know them, I mean, plie and whatever, all those other, I can't even say them. But again, it serves in a way to keep people, I don't think they intentionally do it to keep people out, but it just, that's just how it works. Because if you have this terminology and you're not part of the club or you're not in the group, you can feel like you're on the outside looking in. And a lot of times we are. And the same thing happens with church a lot of times. And the church, rather than being irresistible, can really be resisted. And a lot of people resist church or the things of God. And, and I'm afraid that sometimes it's partly our fault because we, we develop this insider terminology that, that really communicates a lot of things to us. And we get it. We understand it. I mean, even really common things like that word saved. Are you saved? And we all know what that means. Everybody here probably knows what that means, but then there's people who are not part of the inside group in church, and that may sound really strange to them. I mean, they might be thinking of swimming and a life. I don't know. I mean, but it's different. It's different words that we don't intend to do it, but in a way, it keeps people out. And I wonder sometimes what people do think of church. And I know that in different groups, because of maybe some bad actors in the church, you know, they may think of TV preachers is representing all church, and not every TV preacher is bad. I mean, there's a lot of them I really enjoy, but sometimes they, you know, you can get a bad name from there, or, or maybe just, you know how a lot of times, some preachers seem like they're really angry. I remember I've been sitting in church before and thinking, is he mad at me? Because I feel like he's yelling at me, and I didn't really do anything, and I agree with what he's saying. We're on the same team here, but it can feel like that sometimes, and if you're not part of the in-group, you don't realize, well, that's just fun I mean, he's really preaching and preaching up a storm. And I mean, I've, there's times where as Christians, we could kind of tagged with being judgmental or 
probably the worst and most common is being hypocrites. And maybe you've heard this phrase that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, which is really frustrating because that's not what the church is about. You think about what Christ did when he came, he's, he was putting together a community of people who follow his teachings and follow him. And he came to explain the way to God and clear the path to God. I mean, what's, what's to resist about that? I mean, why is that even bad? Why would people even have a problem with that? And then uh, as, um, if you were here a little earlier, you might have heard the introduction video, and maybe you've, you've heard that this is our mission and vision as a church to love God and love others. Who could argue with that? I mean, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And Jesus, when he was asked, I mean, he said, love is, the, love is the standard of everything. He even said we have to love our enemies. And again, what's there to resist about that? But people often resist the church. And in the first 300 years of the church, they resisted the church for an interesting reason. And, and on paper, at least, the reason was that the early Christians would not give allegiance to Caesar. And so they were persecuted over and over and over for that until one of the... Uh, one of the uh, the uh, Roman emperors actually became a Christian, and then it was all okay to be a Christian. But think about this. Wouldn't it be cool if the only thing people had to complain about with Christians was they work harder than everybody else? You could trust them with, all, with everything, with your money. They treat their women better than anybody. In fact, I may not agree with their Jesus or agree with their religion, but I think my daughter being married to a Christian man would be the best thing possible because I know he would treat her with respect and dignity. And Wouldn't that be awesome? What if we were known for that? I mean, who could resist that? I mean, if that's what we were all about. I mean, I'm okay with people really having a problem with, if, if they don't really understand or maybe they're not ready to accept that Jesus is God and the way to salvation, but certainly they shouldn't object to the way we act and the way we treat people. I mean, what if the only complaint they had was that we were totally devoted to Jesus Christ? What could they possibly argue about? Because even the world says he's a good teacher, Right? And they all say he's a good person. So if we follow him and follow him with everything. But I think that's not really the problem. That's not what they're resisting. I think a lot of times what they're resisting is really what we might call religion. And I think these terms really apply to everything. I mean, every religion, whether it's, you know, ancient Judaism or Buddhism or, or Islam or even tribal religions. It seems like all religions, they kind of have a sacred place or places, whether it's a mountaintop or a temple or or a building, or, or just a meadow, or something, right? I mean, if you were to type in, and I did this, to Google, and you put sacred place, there's some really pretty places that pop up. And they do, they look sacred. You know, the trees are just right, and maybe it's got a little fog and mist, and, but you've got sacred places. And then it seems like every religion also has some kind of a sacred text. And this text is above and beyond everything else, and then they usually have some kind of sacred men, or sometimes women, but but they're the ones who are the only ones who can really clearly articulate and interpret the text. Then they have really sacred followers who follow whatever the text says, or at least whatever the sacred men tell them the text says. And the whole idea is they kind of hold that over people's heads because if you can't understand the text, then you don't know how to get to heaven. And if you can't get to heaven, you got to trust everything that they say to get there. And it can be kind of scary. There's a power thing involved in that, and it can be kind of, kind of weird. And you might be sitting there and saying, well, Pastor Dennis, there's times where you say the Greek says, <laughs> which is true. And you might, might be wondering, well, how is that different than everything else? Well, let me tell you, at least begin to tell you the difference. The difference is what we call good news. We call it good news because Christ came to change all that. He came to, to actually fulfill 
what was set up as religion. I believe that every human being we have within our nature built in a yearning to have a relationship with God. I believe that. I see, you see it in every culture. Every culture has a way that they're trying to work their way to God. And God came down in the form of Christ himself and said, all of the past, for instance, in Judaism, in the Old Testament, pointed to me and I am the way. And then he simplified all that. And he showed us the way to Christ and it was, or the way to God and it was right through him. He really signals the end of religion. What's interesting is if you look at it in that context, right away he starts to do with all that stuff I listed about with religion. So first of all, the sacred place. You, most of you probably grew up in Sunday school and you know the story. I mean, God starts with Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to send you to the promised land. You've got to get there. And then once they get there, they establish, you know, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And then what's the big first commandment that Jesus gives his disciples? Look what he tells them. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He actually sends them away from the sacred place. Isn't that interesting? It's like almost like, God, wait a minute. You got a whole 180 degrees here. I thought we were supposed to be back in the sacred place in the temple where God is. And he's rearranging all that in their minds. He's taking, he's taking a faith and a re- relationship with him that used to be only reserved for certain people. And he's expanding it to everybody. He's making it for once and for all acceptable and accessible to everyone. It's not limited. It's not, it's not just for a few of us who are good enough. It's for everybody. And then in Acts 1.8, he says, you're going to be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you and, your, and you, <laughs> you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the holy place. And then in all Judea and in Samaria, which Jews didn't really like to go. And he's sending them out with this message. He's, he's totally redesigning everything. It's almost as if there's an end to that sacred place where the sacred men would interpret the sacred texts. It was the beginning. You know what he was really telling them? That, <laughs> this is a little corny, but the you in the pew is more sacred. You catch that? Listen, you are more sacred than the pew. The place you're sitting isn't the sacred thing that the, you're sitting in there. And then the you that's next to you is actually more sacred than the pew. That was different. It used to be that people were under all of that and secondary. But Christ came to say, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You're the ones made in my image. I don't need my image on a building. You are in my image. God made us in his image, and he wants to restore relationship with us on that level. Totally, totally different. Rearranging everything. So everyone is sacred. The person right next to you is more sacred And I know that some of you guys have had the privilege to go to Jerusalem and and Israel, and I would love to go there. In fact, I heard a story about a guy who actually got saved on one. Oh, Frank England, you know, his his funeral was yesterday. And someone was telling a story about when he went to Israel with Dodie and got saved there and then actually got his baptism was in the Jordan River. How cool is that? But you know what? As cool as that was and as holy and sacred as we might think the Jordan River is, Frank was more sacred than that. His soul matters more to God than any place you can even think of, any place you might want to walk to. Or, you know, I would love to walk in the, in the same footsteps that Christ did. I want to go on that Via Dolorosa on the way to the cross, just like what he did. But even as I'm doing that someday, God willing, the people surrounding me are actually more important than those steps. They are the people that he died for. 
That's what matters to him more than anything else. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing. He lives in us. He doesn't live in a carved box or an image or a building or a place. We kind of get we kind of get mixed up on that. In fact, I think it, for us, a lot of times it makes it more comfortable because if we can put him in the box and we don't have to deal with all the things he says and does and because it's safer there and we can walk away and do our own thing and then leave him there. But that's not how it works. Instead, he's come to live in us. When Christ arisen from the dead at one of the times that he appeared to his disciples, he says this to them. It says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He blew his spirit into them. They were, every, every single one of you who is a believer in Christ today, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He resides in you. Resides in you. It's amazing, really. I think I'm more and more about it. And Paul put it this way. He said, for God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles, not just the sacred Jews, too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Christ in you. I don't know about you, but I, a lot of times when I'm talking to people, I need to remind myself. You know, maybe it's the, the um, angry waitress. You guys ever had that? I always wonder, why do you do this if you don't like doing this? You really should do something different. And then I try to tip them extra just to help them make, make them happier. And I don't know if it works because I leave. But, but I always wonder about that. And I need to be reminded sometimes, Christ well, Christ may not be in them if they're not a Christian, but still, he died for them, and that's, that, they're more important than anything else. Got to be reminded about that. Christ is in us. It's not about a place. It's about us. He is in us. We go on from there, and you think about, <clears throat> let's look at what First Peter said. He takes it even a step further. So no longer is it about having sacred people who are priests who have to go and make atonement for your sins. Instead, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, I think it's important for us to realize as we're reading the New Testament, these were all, with the exception of Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, all the rest of them were good Jewish people. For them to say these things was a huge departure from the religion that they were raised in. Because in the religion they were raised, not only, could, uh, not only could only a few people be a priest, you actually had to have that in your genetics. You had to be a descendant of, of Moses and Levi. You had to be a Levite. You had to be in that actual descendancy to be qualified to be a priest. So they were taught from an early age that only certain people could have direct access to God and that those special people were the only ones who could be like the go-between between people and God. So these Jewish guys are now saying, no, 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 no. Jesus fulfills all that and he becomes our go-between and we have direct access to God now. That was a huge, huge change to the religion they were raised in. Huge. Changed everything That's amazing. I think about this too, how Jesus even redefined leadership. Think about, think about the night that he was betrayed when he's, when he's um, doing the last supper with them. And this is Jesus, the one whose hands raised people from the dead and healed the blind and, and, and multiplied the bread and loaves and walked on what this is Jesus in their minds. He was their teacher above and, and beyond all of them. He gets up takes off his outer garment, 
puts a robe or puts a towel around him like a servant and washes their feet. He does the very thing that none of them would have ever dreamed to do. You know why? Because they were too prideful. They were fighting over who was going to be in charge. He totally redefined what, what leadership was in this faith. Now, in religion, leadership is people who are above and higher than everybody. Jesus said, no, no, the leader is the servant of all. And in fact, I think Jesus would say, as you get, as you get more and more responsibility in my church, that just means you wash more and more feet. You become the bigger servant, not more, more, and more in charge. Jesus changed everything. He, re- he changed everything. He said, um, he even came and said that he himself fulfilled all the sacred texts. He didn't abolish them. Instead, what he says is, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was the fulfillment of them. So don't ever think that I'm saying that the Jewish religion was wrong. God instituted that, but he did it as a signpost and a guide to Christ who would fulfill it all. Christ was the actual fulfillment of that. He became that sacrificial lamb. He was the one who came and and took all of that on himself. And he even took it even further. He said that the entire law was summed up by love. Now, that was a huge statement because I'm sure you're aware that, that for the Jews, the law, the Torah, those first five books were so holy and so important to them that they created extra laws to make sure they didn't break any of the ten. We call it the Talmud, but they had like over 635 additional rules to explain how not to break the Ten Commandments. So then Jesus comes and turns that all up on its head because someone was trying to trap him and they said, so out of all of the laws, not just the Ten, but they're probably referring to those 600 and some, which is most important. And Christ, he turns it all upside down on him and he says, he replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what had to shock him. The entire law of the prophets and all the demands based on these two commandments. That had to shake him up. Because they're saying, wait, 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 wait. We like following rules. Following rules is easy. But when you, when you say instead that you just have to love people and do the right thing for the right reason, that's a lot different. That's a heart change. The other one, you can just follow rules and still be angry inside. It's like maybe your mom didn't do this, but there were times when my sister and I'd fight and they, my mom would say, okay, you hug and kiss and make up. My heart wasn't changed. I mean, I kissed her and then I went and washed my mouth. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't that bad, but, but still, my heart wasn't changed at all. My heart didn't change, but I followed the rules. I did what she said to do, but I didn't change. What Jesus talked about is something that comes from the inside out, and because your heart has changed, you follow the rules because you want to. You follow the rules because it comes natural now, because he lives inside you, and everything is different. Everything is different. And then, taking it even a step further, he says, that love is now the standard by which we will judge Christians. This gets tough. Jesus said in in John 13, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not about rule keeping. Love goes way, way, way beyond rule keeping. Rule keeping is like this. How close can I get to the line without falling over it? Love doesn't do that. 
Love doesn't even worry about where that line is because love is too busy trying to make things right. There's no line in love. Love goes, goes way beyond the extra measure. Love goes farther and farther and farther. Every, it's, it's so different than what the world sees as I just have to do what I need to do to get by. Jesus, he didn't even stop there. He went even further. He says here, if you're, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, he says, leave your sacrifice there at the altar and then go and be reconciled to the person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. You know, I've read that scripture, I don't know how many times, but I never saw it this way before. I mean, if you think about it, God is saying that the relationship between each of you actually is more important. And if that's not right, that you need to take care of that before you take care of me. Now, Believe me, your relationship with God is the most important thing. But he's saying that it will now be defined based on how you treat other people. Think about this. Think about the, um, the Lord's Prayer. You know how familiar that is to us. You know, our Father which art in heaven. Did you ever catch in there? It says, and forgive me as I forgive other people. Some versions actually imply that you're not going to be forgiven if you don't forgive other people. So your relationship with God now is dependent, or well, judged, and somewhat dependent on how you treat other people. I, I would even say this. <clears throat> the vertical relationship with God is actually now measured by the horizontal relationship with other people. That's the measure. How you treat other people really shows and illustrates how much or how, how close your relationship is to God. <laughs> or you could say it like this. Um, I demonstrate my love for God by how much I love other people. Or that my love for God animates my love for other people. And that's the reason I treat the other people the way I do is because I love God so much I can't help but treat them like God would treat them. Because that's what's in me now. He lives in me and he makes it work that way. When Jesus came to his disciples after the resurrection, or no, before the resurrection, and he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Isaiah. Come back. And then Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And this is the famous statement where Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, exactly. And on that statement, I will build my church. In the scriptures, that word church was originally not translated church. That's hard for us to even understand, isn't it? Because we're so familiar with that word. It was actually a different word. It was, it was a word in the Greek. Here, we're doing that whole thing, Greek thing again. Um, it's up there on the top. It says ekklesia. Let's all say that together so you can speak Greek. Ready? Ekklesia. Ekklesia. There you go. <coughs> That's Greek. That word wasn't actually a Christian word. All it meant was a group of people who were gathered together for a purpose. So a people with purpose, a people with a mission, a people that had something in common and they were headed in the same direction. It was actually used most often before Christianity in context of political movements because that fits. You see how that would fit. That's what Jesus was talking about. He certainly wasn't talking about a building because when he told the disciples that, there were no church buildings. There weren't actually official church buildings probably until the year 300 when Christianity became an approved religion. Up until that time, they were meeting in houses or wherever they could meet. The building wasn't it, but a lot of times we get confused and associate the word church with a building, and that's, that wasn't what it meant. Originally, like I said, when, billion, when, uh, when they translated the scriptures, they used the word community or, or uh, congregation, words like that. 
But then somewhere in the, in the, in the mid-centuries, it, it kind of, they started using a German word, which meant, it was kirch, which we get church, and that meant a sacred place. Do you see how this starts to break down? And people stopped, they started losing the missional part of Christianity, and they started becoming about a building. I had some students in Mexico a few years ago, and we were working on a, uh, a church, and they had had a, um, most of their church was made out of garage doors that we had, they had bolted together into this church, and it was awesome. I mean, their services were amazing and anointed, and people filled the Holy Spirit, and great worship, and the building didn't matter. And we'd gone down there to build a building, and so I was, I was on my way with another guy, and we were looking for materials, and we stumbled across this huge building right in the middle of nowhere. I mean, most of the houses were made of cardboard or cinder block. I'm thinking, what in the world is this building? You know, I didn't know what it was. I mean, none of the government buildings looked like this or anything. It had a big wall all the way around and a big gate. And so um, we went in and walked in and we walked in and it was a church. I had no idea. All the floor, all the walls, the altar, all of it was solid marble. In a city, I mean, there was probably more money in that building than the whole entire rest of the city. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, this is incredible, but this isn't the church. The church are the people who come in. The church are the people. You are the church. You are Crown Point Church, whether it's on this hill or wherever. You are the church. You are Crown Point Church. And we have a mission. Jesus came and he, he started a whole new covenant and a whole new agreement. He started something brand new. I mentioned before on that Last Supper, they were celebrating Passover. It's one of the oldest feasts of Judaism. And at, this, at that time, it had been in practice for over 1,400 years. That means that all those Jewish uh, guys, those disciples, and Christ himself would have been doing that feast from the time they were old enough to sit at the table. And they would have gone through the whole feast. And the whole feast reminds them about, about their slavery in Egypt and it reminds them about their deliverer, Moses. And it reminds them about how, how the, the death angel passed over their houses once the blood of the sacrificial lamb was applied to the doorposts. And that's where they got the name Passover. And as part of the process of celebrating Passover, it's hard to imagine, but Jesus sits there and he says, this is a new covenant I'm giving to you today. I wonder if some of them didn't say, what? You're changing the whole religion today, right now? And you know how it goes, because we're going to celebrate communion in a minute. He takes the bread that would have been part of their Passover celebration, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And if you can put yourself in their position, they had to be thinking, what is he talking about? Now, in a few hours, they might have realized the significance, but at that moment, they probably didn't understand, and they're probably thinking, can he say this? Can he do this? Because he's not Moses. Yes, he's a miracle worker. He's the son of God, but he's not Moses. I mean, this, is, this is really defines Jews and Judaism. Then he takes it a whole step further, and he takes the cup, and he says, take this and drink it, and this, this is a new covenant in my blood, which I give for you. There had to be at least one of them who thought, he's not even bleeding yet. And I have to wonder if 12 hours later, when they saw him bleeding, they might have understood what we now, from this perspective of history, we can look back and see, oh, 
Jesus, we are in bondage to sin, slavery to sin. Jesus is our deliverer. He's also the sacrificial lamb, and it was his blood that was shed that paid the price. And it's because of that blood that the Passover angel will pass over us, and we now have access direct to the Father. And what they found out later, which they couldn't have known at the time because they wouldn't have been there, but but in the temple itself, there used to be this huge thick curtain that separated everybody from the Holy of Holies where they thought God lived. They thought the God of the universe was was held in somehow in that holy of holy place. And only one person could go in there once a year. And that was the priest, the high priest. And he would go in once a year and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the mercy seat. And that would give atonement and mercy for the entire nation. And when Christ was sacrificed on the cross, the scriptures tell us that that curtain was torn from top to bottom, from God down to man, which created full and equal access for each one of us. Jesus turned it all upside down. No more sacred people and sacred texts and sacred places. And you're now sacred and you have direct access to God. And Christ himself becomes the one that goes between you and him. And you can now take your sins directly to God and ask him directly for forgiveness. It's a brand new thing he did. It's an amazing thing he did. It's amazing because he fulfills the old covenant. He changes everything that way. Baptism now replaces as the symbolic change that circumcision used to have. It's an external sign of an inward reality. Everything changes. God's presence no longer just dwells in a temple and one person experiences once a year. But even as we sang that last worship song and we pray for the Holy Spirit's presence, we also pray that God would be glorified right here and in us because this is where he lives. If I could have the worship team, and then also, if, if those who are helping with communion could get ready. And as they're all doing that, I'm going to ask you to do something for a minute. I'd like everybody in the room to just shut your eyes for a second. I've been praying for you all week long, and wondering if there might be someone that came today and maybe you've, maybe you've been putting off really giving your life to Christ because maybe you've thought, I don't know. I don't think I fit. I don't know all the terminology. I don't know that it's really for me. Maybe you've thought that it's something that's outside of you and it, it didn't really make sense. Or maybe you thought, I'll never be good enough. I can never work my way into that. But maybe after this morning and what you've heard today, you realize that God isn't like that. In fact, he so desperately wants a relationship with you that he moved literally heaven and earth and sent his son here to pay the price for you. And if you're here today and you would like to apply that sacrifice to your life, I just want you to raise your hand really quickly and we're going to pray together in a second. Anybody here like that, that you would like to to apply his sacrifice to your life and you want to become a Christian today? Anybody at all, just raise your hand so I can see it. It's awesome that we're all Christians in here. With your eyes still closed, though, I want to ask you a couple more questions. We are about to take communion. The thing about communion is, it's again a symbol of what Christ did. It's a symbol of his broken body and his shed blood. And you, just like I mentioned a minute ago for other people, maybe you have kind of got 
maybe sidetracked a little bit and lost touch with what Christianity really is and what Christ really did and the good news that he actually lives in you. I found that the Christian life is something that takes constant maintenance. And for me, I want to make sure I'm living as close to him as possible. So I just want to ask you a question with your eyes closed for a second. Do you, do you know of a time or has there been a time in your life where you are closer to him than you are right now? If that's true for you, it doesn't have to stay that way. The thing is, he desires that relationship with you more than actually you could. And you are sacred to him and you are holy and he wants to make you holy. So I want to invite you for a minute. I'm going to pray and I just want you to pray along with me. And I'm going to ask that God would forgive us of whatever might come between he and us. Father, I'm sorry for the things that I've done that are wrong and that have kept me from closer relationship to you. God, I want the relationship that you intend.